0: My brain is making another one of those hard transitions. Sure. And I'm just trying to figure out how to like you know, soften it so it's not just like now for something completely you, different. You need
1: to just just cheat and like gaslight people. <laughs> Say speaking of that and then <laughs> and, and let people's own brain do the
0: work of how that's speaking of that. Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome again to just sustainability. curious conversations about sustainability, equity, and social justice. In the previous episode of Just Sustainability, we met Dr. Ian Werkheiser and listened to him and I talk about epistemic self-determination. In this episode, we return to that conversation. More specifically, we begin with me asking Ian about a paper he recently published and the distinction he made in that paper between systemic sustainability and goal-directed sustainability. Here's what we talked about.
1: It's a natural transition. You just say, uh, well, what you're talking about is that communities... Uh, and people need to work to sustain universities. Otherwise, they're actually at a lot more risk than we think they are. Lots of universities are closing right now. So we need to think about ways that people sustain stuff. You wrote a paper about how people work to sustain systems, right? There's there's your transition. Right. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so so the, the work that uh, Zach and I did, uh, yeah, is looking at sort of an underexamined aspect of sustainability, which is that people actually have to do the work of sustaining. So let me explain that first, and then I'll talk to that systemic and goal-directed, uh, difference. Sure. So, um, often in sustainability, people doing the thing to make it sustainable is sort of dropped out, right? People ignore it. And so they'll say stuff like, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll say this or that thing is more sustainable or less sustainable. Um, but if you don't, uh, think about people doing the work of sustaining something, you get weird results. So like a well-manicured topiary filled British rose garden. Uh, is in, you might think it's not sustainable, right? right? It's uh, very fragile, Uh, but actually it's deeply sustainable. Many of them have been going for hundreds of years. And the reason why is that the people who tend that garden want to keep tending that garden. And so they do the work required to continually repair it, even though it is fragile. Mm -hmm. Um, The word that people often confuse is resilience. Resilience is just an ability to return to norm after perturbation right right so that if you, something weird happens you know like some forests are resilient to fire yeah so if there's a fire that forest comes right back in fact uh, lots of trees in that forest might use fire in order to spread their seeds uh, other forests are very vulnerable to fire mm-hmm. and if there's a fire then they don't uh, come back very well or it takes a long time or they come back in a different form so that's resilience that doesn't involve people but sustainability is a thing people do people sustain stuff mm-hmm. and so then we need to refocus on people Um, which I think often falls out in ways that are, uh, that lead to bad results. So, uh, but the distinction between systemic sustainability and goal-directed sustainability is systemic sustainability is saying, okay, so let's take a thing, right? Um, a system, uh, we'll draw a border around it and say, this is the system that we're concerned about. And that border is fairly arbitrary. Um, you could draw lots of other places, although in our society, some, Lines will make more sense than other ones, but it's ultimately pretty arbitrary just sort of based on norms, the way our brains work, that kind of thing. And you say, okay, everything inside the circle is a system. Everything outside of that circle is an externality. And then the question is, can that system and the thing in that, can that circle uh, continue for a period of time, which I am also going to specify, Um, you know, given its inputs and outputs into Mm -hmm. and out of that circle, is it likely to be able to keep going as a circle Uh, for the amount of time that I'm concerned with, right. Or are external stuff to that circle, uh, likely to disrupt it or our system or things inside the circle, likely to just kind of break down and not be able to keep doing the inputs and outputs, right. That that's systemic sustainability. So very abstract. Uh, but think about it. Like we might say, um, how sustainable is, uh, this farming system, right. This way of farming where you, uh, in Oklahoma, you plow everything up, you have, fence defense fence, uh fields, no trees anywhere, no windbreaks. breaks, um, you use a plow to turn all of the dirt over, yeah, and then you throw seeds down you know it's sort of like uh early twentieth century farming techniques in Oklahoma right um, how sustainable is that uh, and a, an answer that doesn't make sense an an, an inhuman answer <laughs> is <laughs> well it's not sustainable at all because eventually the sun will explode right 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 that's that's not that's not an answer a human wants if they ask that question, right? Yeah. So that so we are arbitrarily specifying a time limit when we say sustainable. Okay. Um, and uh, it would also be weird if I say, okay, I'm like, you know, I'm an Oklahoma farmer. I'm wondering how sustainable these turn of the century, turn of the last century uh, te- techniques are. And you say, well, uh, pretty sustainable, like, you know, because even if everything goes to hell in Oklahoma uh-huh. and we get a Dust Bowl, hmm, maybe that'll happen. But even if that happens, uh, we'll still be producing food in Germany, right? Right. The Oklahoma farmer's like, I, so? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> right. Because So I've drawn a circle about what I care about, um, you know, or, or indeed, uh, you know, leave alone Germany. It'll still be in California. There'll still be lots of fruit that you can pick. So if you, if your farm blows away in the Dust Bowl, yeah. just drive out to Oklahoma, to California, move to Bakersfield and pick all of the, all the fruit. And someday people will write a novel about your family. It'll be great. <laughs> um, you know, that's not, uh, and, you know, and indeed they'll write a song about it. Uh, it'll, you know, Bruce Springsteen will do the song Rage Against the Machine will do a cover of the song that's really good. It'll yeah. be amazing. Yeah. Right. None of that counts as sustainability <laughs> right. for that Oklahoma farmer. So we're kind of making a circle, uh, of, I mean, the ability to continue to grow food here in the area that I can see and the ones that my neighbors can see. That's kind of what I'm worried about. And in terms of time limit, I'm probably thinking a few generations into the future. Right. Right. And it's like, oh, well, then, no, not at all. You guys need way more windbreaks (laughs) and way better soil practices because uh, there's periodic uh, cycles of drought that you don't know about yet here in Oklahoma. Yeah. Right. But you find it um, real
0: hard soon.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're going to find out. Right. (laughs) So let me (laughs) let me warn you. And, you know, stretching up the, the entire Midwest from Oklahoma up through into Canada. Yeah. So. uh so that's systemic sustainability. It just looks at whether or not it is the case that things can be sustainable. And that's interesting, actually. Uh-huh. But um, that doesn't seem to actually capture what people are talking about when they say sustainable. Right. Um, when, they, when, when that's used as like, our university is committed to sustainability, or we want our buildings to be LEED certified. <coughs> Why, right? Uh-huh. Um, if it's just sort of a fact of the matter kind of question about whether or not something is sustainable. Like who cares, right? It, I don't know. Maybe it'll we'll break down. We'll do something new. Yeah. But it seems like sustainability is a goal, right? So this is that goal-directed idea that people want to be sustainable. Right. Um, so that's seen as a good thing. Uh, so it's a value, right? That we want to be able to uh, live in such a way that there is predictability, that there that things will continue into the future, that um, you know, that everything will. You know that we have a stable system right that that's seen as a thing that we want
0: mm-hmm.
1: um we don't want to have an unpredictable future where things might get much much worse uh in fact we would like uh sustainable conditions and you know improvement probably monotonic improvement just constant upward curve right because we're americans so uh okay great then it then it's a goal then it's a value that you have um but in that case then th- we can ask questions that if that's a thing you are pursuing, if that's a value and a goal, then how does it stack up to other values and goals you might have? Um, So like Paul Thompson uh, made this distinction uh, really well in his book, The Varieties of Sustainability. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he says, you know, it seems like sustainability is a goal for a lot of people based on how we talk about it. Um, But then how does that connect to, say, justice? Should we prefer a more sustainable, less just system or a less sustainable, more just system? And it seems like a lot of people uh, just kind of avoid that question, Thompson points out, by just assuming that sustainable things are just things without any story as to why that would be. Right. Um, and so he uses the example of Egyptian slave agriculture as a system that was deeply sustainable for a very long time. Right. Um, seemingly quite bad right i mean there's a really important book in our culture about <laughs> why it was bad uh i don't know if you've ever heard of it but like there's a really popular a bunch of movies have been made about it yeah, yeah anyway uh so you know enough that some of the people who work in egyptian slave agriculture might run away and try to like even run through the ocean they're so desperate to get away from it so it seems bad yes um so then what should we do right how how should we think about that um and so the paper that zach and i uh wrote looked at that question we looked at some other versions of sustainability that people talked about like um what a lot of people listening to this might be more familiar with like the the three pillars model Mm -hmm. or the three circles or the triple bottom line there's lots of ways to say the the word three yes uh you know like uh, so that things are uh economically sustainable socially sustainable and environmentally sustainable um or the bruntland report where you say uh, we should use resources we have now to meet needs we have now, but not in such a way as we compromise the needs of future generations to meet uh, or the, the ability of future generations to meet their needs. And uh, we beat up on all these ideas for, <laughs> for a while in the paper. We say they don't make any sense and they're bad. Uh, you know, that's a slight exaggeration, but we say that they are limited. They only work in certain contexts right. and that you can quickly run into other ones because they're ignoring this idea of people doing the work to sustain stuff. Also, they're just weird, yes. uh, like the triple the triple pillar model for those of, for people who just like parrot that without thinking about it. I ask you to ask yourself, is the econom is economics not part of society? <laughs> yeah, just just stop and ask yourself that. How, so if things are economically sustainable and socially sustainable, what is economic sustainability but a variety of social sustainability? Right. Um, and you could argue at the widest scales. Uh, is society not dependent on the environment? Like, you know, the, we were just, we spent the first part of this talk talking about how the environment isn't nature with wolves and stuff. Mm. It's the world around us. So you know, anyway, it's a confusing concept, uh, but it made a lot of sense for what it was created for originally, which was looking at farms, individual farming communities in the U S mm. is this farming community economically sustainable. Will it continue to make money? Is it socially sustainable? Will people choose to be farmers in future generations? And is it environmentally sustainable? That whole Dust Bowl thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a good question, but it doesn't make sense to use that same model to say, is America economically and socially and environmentally sustainable? I don't even know how to, what does it mean? Like, it doesn't make sense as a question, right. um, but people do try to ask it. So, boo to all that. Instead, let's look at um, people doing the work to sustain something. So, if something is sustainable, people have to be able to do that work. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's so things are so as a goal, right We want things to be sustainable, so we want people to be able to do it, which means we need to think about their sort of biophysical needs, right? Are they biophysically able to do this? Socially, uh, are the social systems in place for them to be able to do it? You know you can ask things like do they make enough money to do it? Um, is it socially approved of enough to do it? things like that? Mm-hmm. Is there a community built up around it? <clears throat> and then because we're humanity scholars, you can Im- you can think of us as biophysical beings. You can think of us as social beings. You can think of us as reasoning, autonomous kind of agents. Do we have good reasons to do this, right? Is there a reason for us to continue it? So the British Rose Garden um, is biophysically possible in England, not in the Sahara Desert. It's socially celebrated um, and gardeners are paid to work on it and they get featured in magazines. There's a lot of social support. And then there's reasons to do it. Uh, Ask gardeners why they do it. Uh, Partly it has to do with aesthetic standards. Of beauty in England about gardens, uh, and and the tradition of you know keeping things you know my my grandfather started this and that matters to me those sorts of things right right so um so the nice thing about that this is kind of a long way to get a long a long walk for a small drink of water as my grandmother used to say <laughs> uh, so so all of that is to say that um, that model. Allows you to get goal-directed sustainability because right. that's something we should want: is that people aren't asked to do or forced to do things that are biophysically beyond their capabilities, right? Driving them to not getting enough sleep, for right. example. Um, that social, we're not socially, uh, we're supporting people doing the things that we think are valuable, and that people have good reasons. We aren't compelling people to do things that they don't want to do at the threat of, you know, not being able to feed their family, for example. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the neat thing about that in our view, is that it brings justice in in a natural way um, as in that reasoning part, because thing, this is more just is a reason to keep doing something in a particular way. So it, it sort of gets around that problem that Paul Thompson pointed out, uh, because it brings justice in naturally, rather than kind of bolting it on and saying, you know, triple bottom line, and also that should be just, I hope.
0: Uh, yeah, I really like that model, because I think uh, it's a model that forces us to consider two things in our discourse, right? First, it forces us to, to, to think about the heterogeneity of our society right what sustainability means isn't this kind of monolithic thing right it, it within a society we'll have to weigh different visions of sustainability and the kind of weigh different potential paths that we we'll be going which i think for recognizing that forces us to be much more conscious about the need for uh fair discourse right and then i think the other thing that uh, the model is really useful to think about is how to make social change right like oftentimes when folks are trying to make social change they just sort of like yell about the outcome right like we need to do this we need to make this change but there isn't as much thought about like what do we need to change about society and change about like people's uh you know kind of perspectives and like value priorities to shift uh society towards the that outcome and and i think thinking about the uh goal-directed sustainability the way you do um helps uh, encourage both those things.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, you know, the, the hope is that it, people are all already talk about sustainability as a motivating value, right? As Paul Thompson pointed out, like we need to, we have a goal of achieving X measure of sustainability, um, as a company or as a university or whatever, uh, or as a city. Um, and so people are already doing that. Uh, and the hope is to be able to see that that discourse has to be connected to, uh, important questions of justice that they're otherwise going to miss
0: as always i try to end my conversations for just sustainability by inviting guests to take the reins of the conversation when i asked ian to identify a topic that he wanted to talk about and that i hadn't gotten to he turned our conversation to non-human animals and how we need to consider them in a more robust way when we're talking about sustainability i tend to end off my episodes my podcasts by providing the the guest an opportunity to pick a topic because uh i find that if all we talk about is sort of like directed by the questions i ask i don't get surprised by things as much because like i'm sort of guiding the direction of the conversation and so i like to be like surprised at the end and like let the guests sort of identify something that they want to talk about that i haven't brought up yet
1: that's interesting well yeah let me so here you can help me uh write a paper sure (laughs) (laughs) And then I won't give you credit because this doesn't count. This is just, this is just talking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no. So, uh, so, okay. Think about that model sustainability that we just talked about. Sure. Um, a thing that I'm interested in, I mean, I'm currently busy with that book proposal about digital worlds, as I was saying, uh, but a paper that has been sort of rattling in the back of my brain for a while is thinking about the role of non-human animals in that model. Mm -hmm. Um, so, the way as written it's just looking at people human people working to sustain a system right um and in that case uh non-human animals would sort of come in as constraints so you know biophysical constraints mm-hmm. uh you know you have to make sure if you're trying to sustain a vineyard you have to think about sun and water but you also have to think about pests right uh so you know they can be a constraint in that sense um but i think that you could reformulate that model to think about non-human animals as actors in the system Mm -hmm. Um, and thinking about ways that uh, you want their behavior uh, and the system that they are part of to be biophysically, socially, whatever that means, and for good reasons, whatever that means, uh, for non-human animals. Uh, So I have in mind things like uh, wilderness overpasses for freeways. Mm. So um, freeways are... problem uh (laughs) for lots of animals including humans that use freeways so uh one of the many problems with freeways is that uh they cut through areas where other animals are wandering around and doing stuff um and that can be a real problem right if they can't cross that freeway then you've essentially created islands right right you've you've put all these animals on small islands and the island might be too small to support uh, the population. Right. Um, also, you might like literally start having genetic effects of being on an island, like the animals are smaller in order to adapt to the fact that there's less, fewer resources. Um, and if an animal is already endangered, you know, you might have, you might accidentally push them over that brink, right? Mm. So that's bad. They will try to cross that area. Um, and then you get strikes, right? Animal strikes, you know, the, the top level predator of deers in the US is uh, cars, right. <laughs> for sure. Uh, you know, so that's dangerous for humans. We don't want to hit animals as we're driving down the freeway. We, it might kill us. It's a problem for freeways. It makes it can cause huge traffic slowdowns, right? It makes the freeway less functional, less sustainable, maybe mm. as a system. Uh, and obviously, it's really bad for the animals. Uh, partic- you know, deer are not a you know, white-tailed deer in the U.S. are not uh, at risk of extinction. God knows. Uh, but you know, like think about. Uh, there's a, an ocelot that lives down here in South Texas that uh, is quite endangered, and sometimes gets hit by cars. Right. So um so the question is, rather than saying, look, we humans are trying to sustain freeways, these animals are a problem. Can we think about animals and humans as both things that need to sustain this system? Yeah. Right. So if we're trying to build wilderness overpasses for them, uh biophysical is very easy when we're thinking about non-human animals, right? Yeah. So it has it can't be too high. <laughs> they have to be able to walk over it. Uh you know, it has to be physically possible for them to do. Um but I think that there's a way to think about it being socially possible, it, like animal society, socially sustainable. Yeah. Um, and that they would have reasons to do it. Yes. Uh, but I, I can't like, that's the, I haven't quite gotten a way to formulate that, that feels satisfying
0: for me. So the social part, I, I think at least for like, you know, uh, animals that herd or like the equivalent of herd for whatever sort of animal it is, right there. Are the, we do know things about, that sort of behavior right so like i'm guessing folks who know the natural histories of like say like wolves will understand how the the social dynamics of like wolf packs or like right like folks who know about the the natural history of lions would be able to talk about like how prides of lions in like behave and how they like uh how they uh enforce sort of group cohesion and like make decisions amongst the the group um and so I think there are those facts that we can understand and think about uh, in terms of if we're trying to think of, like, how do we shape our shared environments so that we can all sort of go along our lives in the ways that we're inclined to without one another's interference. Um, and I think with the the reasons, I think if we stop thinking about animals in the abstract, right, and we start thinking of them as individuals, uh, right? So, like, I'm just thinking, like, Right. When when we deal with our like say like do you have do you have any pets? Like do you have a dog or a cat? Sure. Yeah, I have two dogs. Right. I mean, and it's clear that I think if you're a, a decent pet uh owner or pet parent or however you want to frame it, uh you understand your dog, right? You know why your dog's doing things. Your dog can give you particular looks and you know that they want something, right? Like my, for example, like one of my dogs has a particular look that she gives me when I have forgotten to feed her. And I know like, if she gives me that look like, Oh, I got to feed you. Or like there's that I need to go out. Look, Mm -hmm. I I think, I think if we're better, more attentive now, I, I, right. And I don't think this is a unique problem either. Right. I think oftentimes we're not attentive with people and we miss on the reasons why individual people want to do things. And we miss on sort of the, the social reasons why people do things. Uh, And so I, I think it is just a matter of being attentive. And I think the issue is one could argue the reason why we think animals are different is just, we have not been as attentive to them.
1: Yeah, I certainly I've, I've, uh, I've always said that someday when I'm uh, nearly retired, I'm going to compile all the times that philosophers say humans are the only animal who blanks at the beginning of their papers, like as a weird, kind of tick that they get from reading aristotle i guess yeah uh because the end of that sentence is often just simply false if you ask any ethologist right uh one of the ones that i heard on the bbc one time is somebody i I really hope they weren't a philosopher but somebody said human uh humans are the only animals that understands the difference between the way the world is and the way they would like it to be Yeah, and i thought well you clearly don't have pets no If a dog looks at an empty bowl of food and looks back at you and looks back at the food and looks back at you, there's a difference between the way the world is and the way they would like it to be,
0: Mm.
1: right? So maybe leaning into that, like, you know, if you're trying to build wilderness uh, overpasses, you're going to want it to be the kind of thing that those animals want to use, right? That they feel comfortable using. They they don't feel exposed, you know, to, to hawks or something. And like, they feel like it's fun. Like, it feels like a good, natural, usable way for them to get across this area
0: yeah and then i think if you consult with folks who are attentive with those animals right like you know if you want to understand how how deer behave talk to a hunter right someone who's spent a lot of time watching deer Mm -hmm. right and having to like predict how deer will behave and they could tell you right yeah no i think that's right deer will want to do this thing will want to go here uh yeah i think the problem i think is because we become alienated from other animals and so we think that they right they act in these ways that are like Completely foreign to us that we're not capable of understanding, or that are really difficult for us to understand. But it's just because we don't really pay attention to them.
1: Yeah, and and I think the hope would be <clears throat> with this sort of paper is to think like the, the end goal. I hope would be to at least gesture towards the idea that when we're thinking about sustainability, we're thinking about all of the actors uh, having to work to sustain it. And so when we're thinking about uh, like social constraints, we should think about our societies interaction with this animal right do we see it as a pest or as a scary threat like in our weird reaction to wolves Mm. um you know which is tends to be if you look at the data on this we love them if they're far away (laughs) or imaginary and as soon as they aren't then we really don't like them uh you know people's opinions about wolves is directly inversely proportional to how close they are to a wolf yeah um you know so those kinds of uh social attitudes and the reasons that we give for caring about animals and the reasons that we give to animals for w- why they ought to do something um can uh hopefully like it's is hopefully a, a more uh rich a more effective right. a more accurate way to assess uh sustainability of things that involve those non-human actors
0: yeah i mean i think it's honestly i think right i think as long as we recognize that they have interests of their own, right? We might not know what those interests are and we might not pay attention to those interests very much, but once you recognize that they have them and that we could attend to them and right, I think provide some examples of how people have gotten better at attending to them. I think that helps address it. Right. I don't think you need to show that there's a, anything special about animals. I think, well, yeah. So, I mean, animals are different. So I, I don't, I don't presume that like, right. If you're trying to like, i don't know if this necessarily applies to like jellies or something but right uh at least for for many animals that we deal with uh at least you know i guess again it's the charismatic megafauna right the things that probably we need to worry about least but i i, I think right like what it's maybe it's that aldo leopold sort of argument right you just expand the circle you start with the things that like you're most familiar and the easiest and then like think about like how are they similar to the the, the next level of things that are more difficult.
1: Yeah. And I mean, we're likely to suffer, to have a lot of disruption as actors that we don't really think of as actors yeah. uh, start acting differently. Uh, climate based forced migration is going to be a real problem for humans yeah. uh, and non-humans, right? We're going to start seeing a lot of non-human uh, spread of animals as they leave some areas and move into other areas yeah. as uh, climate becomes hus- hospitable. And so how we interact with these uh, newly arriving agents, uh, is I think we're thinking about, I mean, it's a little bit weird for people to think about like giving reasons to bees, but, <laughs> uh, but you know, I don't mean talking it out with them, but, uh, you know, taking into account what they might do in a given situation, thinking about them, not as a constraint, mm-hmm. uh, but as in the system, Yeah, you know, like you're saying, expanding that circle and thinking of them as part of the, the thing, the people or the things that are working to sustain something.
0: Yeah. that are actively responding to conditions. Yeah, right. That in a self-directed way.
1: Yeah. So that's the kind of that's the weird thought that I've been having about that paper. But uh, you know, I do think it's I think I think it it's calling out for it.
0: We've reached the end of the conversation that I had with Ian. There's a few highlights from the second half of our conversation that I wanted to remind you about. First, that Ian believes that we need to think about sustainability in ways that better center the agents, both human and non-human, that are members of the socio-ecological communities that we're trying to make more sustainable. That means we need to think about by physical and social needs, as well as think about the reasons that individuals have for doing things. The second thing that I want to remind you about is what Ian said about non-humans, specifically that we need to think about them as being full-fledged members of our communities when we're thinking about sustainability. Next episode, I'll introduce you to Sean Schaffner, also known as the Roo, and we're going to talk about POOP <laughs> Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute and the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.